All right, kids, if you want to come on up to the front, I would love to have a chance to talk with you this morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you today? Cool. Huh? What am I going to do with you? Oh, there's just two of you. That's okay. How many is two? Two. One plus one, right? Two. Makes two. One plus one makes two. How much is one plus one plus one? Three. Three. That's right. So if you add, do you guys know how to do adding? Uh-huh. How much is two and two? Four. Two plus two is four. What if I do subtraction? Do you know how to do subtraction? Yes. How about two minus one? What? It's one. That's right. Do you know how to do multiplication? No, you haven't learned how to do that yet. I did when I was in school. I learned how to do what was called the times tables. We had to memorize it. So we would say one times three is three. Two times three is six. Three times three is nine. Four times three is 12. Five times three is 15. Six times three is 18. Adults, you remember this. Seven times three is 21. Eight times three is 24. Nine times three is 27. 10 times three is 30. And I learned how to do that. But you know what? If somebody said to me, how much is nine times 273? I can't do that in my head. It's too hard. But you know what? God has given people the ability to create things and some really smart human being created something. I have an iPad and some smart human created what is called a calculator. Have you ever heard of a calculator? What do you do with a calculator? Put some numbers in there and it can help you. So what did I say? Nine times 273, right? So if I say nine times 273 equals 2,457. Just like that, it tells me the answer. See, sometimes it's too hard for my brain, but God has given us some help so that we can do things. You know, a lot of times when we have to make decisions in our life, it's sometimes they're very easy. Like, what do you want to have for breakfast? So if your mom says to you, what do you want to have for breakfast today? What do you tell her? You want, you, um, you just don't, uh, you just get you backwards. You just get you backwards. Yeah, you could have like cereal or toast or sometimes maybe you could have eggs. Just, you, doesn't make any difference what kind of, or pancakes. You could just say, I want pancakes. Sometimes it's a very easy to make a decision. Sometimes it's not easy to make decisions. Sometimes we don't know the answer and we have to try and guess. So we trust God. We, we ask God for help. And I want to read to you out of the Bible. There is a really cool, cool passage in the book of Psalms. It's Psalms 46. And it says this. God is our help when we are in trouble. Did you know that? If you have a problem that's too hard for you to do or too hard for you to figure out, all you have to do is ask God and he will be your help. He will help you to do the thing that you can't do by yourself. You know that? You've already learned a great lesson for your life. Well, I want to pray with you guys and ask God to help you to learn to trust God and to turn to him when you have a problem. And then after that, you guys can go to your class, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, help these kids, please, to learn that when they have a problem that is too hard for them, they can call out to you and you will help them. Their Bible says you are always here to help us. And I ask God that you would prove that to be true in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can go on to your class, okay? Thank you. Thank you for being good listeners. I wasn't sure what the skill level was going to be. So I wasn't sure if there was addition, subtraction, 
Multiplication, division. How many of you people have done times tables when you were kids? Had to actually just memorize them? I pity children today. <laughs> I used, I, I've never used a slide rule. I've, I've had a slide rule, but I've never used one. Okay. Um, for those of you who attend the Wednesday night Bible study, you'll remember that I said Wednesday night that I was struggling with not with understanding what God wanted us to do for the future, whether we would be looking at the book of Acts or whether we would be looking at um, first and second Samuel. And I've been in prayer all week about it. And then finally, the Lord finally said, well, yes. <laughs> what? Yes. So this is the way it's playing out. Sunday morning, we are looking at first and second Samuel. We're going to be studying the lives of Samuel, the King Saul and King David. On Wednesday night, we're going to be doing the book of Acts. So for those of you who are in the Wednesday night study, please read Acts chapter one, verses one through 11. It's real easy. One, 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 one. Okay. Acts chapter one, verses one through 11 to be ready for Wednesday night. But today we're going to be talking about Samuel at the beginnings of the book of Samuel. Um, but before we do that, Craig, would, uh, Craig, Craig's not here. Um, Roy, would you pick, bring up that first slide, please? I want to talk to us about God being our help when we face times that are troubling, things that are hard for us, things that are too hard for us to deal with. The very first, next slide, the very first thing we need to do, though, before we start looking at the life of Samuel, who was the leader for Israel, we need to see why it was important that there was a leader in Israel. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And we don't have time this morning to um, read all of the story of Joshua, but I do want to read a little bit of chapter 24 of Joshua. For those of you who are not familiar, when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he led them out under Moses. Moses was the leader. Joshua was the second in command under Moses. Joshua was the right-hand guy to Moses for the 40 years that they were in the desert. And then finally, um, at the end of Moses' life, God raised up Joshua to be the leader. And Joshua was then used of God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and into dividing up the land and all of that stuff. And so now in chapter 24 of, of Joshua, verses 13 to 31... We see this is the tail end of Joshua's life. And he has gathered the leaders of Israel together, wanting to talk with them before he dies. And what he says to them is this, verse 13. So I gave you a land which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord. And serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, well, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed all those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who live in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord because he's our God. And Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and will make an end of you after he has been so good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua chapter uh, verse 22 of chapter 24. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves. You have chosen 
to serve the Lord. And the people yelled, we are witnesses. Verse 23. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the people. I mean, to the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't want to do a whole lot of preaching at this point. This is just preliminary. But did you hear what he just said to them? You can't serve God because God is holy. God is righteous. God demands too much of you. No, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve him and him only. All right. If you're going to serve him and only get rid of all the other gods that you got in your house right now. Oh. Verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. So on that day, Joshua made a covenant with the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us, and it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his own inheritance. And after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at an age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnasserah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. As long as there were people alive who had seen the hand of God work throughout all of the wilderness travelings, the people of Israel served the Lord. They did not turn aside to other gods. But then that generation died. Turn now to Judges chapter 21. This is the last verse of the last uh, chapter of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, no leader. Everyone did as they saw fit. We don't have time to read through the 21 chapters of Judges this morning. To see all of the stupid things the people of Israel did. My daughter sent me this morning. I wish that she had sent it to me yesterday because I want, I I so wish that I could have had time to get it up on the screen for you guys to see. She sent me this really funny picture that said, shepherds are the ones that take care of the sheep because sheep can't take care of themselves because they're just so dumb. But the shepherd loves the sheep. And then she sent this picture and it said, this is me. And it was a sheep with a yellow bucket stuck on its head. And I thought, "Mm mm-hmm, not her, but mm mm-hmm. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. No, you can't. No, we will serve the Lord. Oh, if you're going to serve the Lord, get rid of all the gods you've got in your house right now. Oh, oh, okay. See, that's the challenge is... When left to their own devices, the people of Israel, and I I would say even us, don't serve the Lord. We end up being like the end of Judges. There's no leader, no one holding me to account. So the end result is, I just do what I see fit in my own eyes. And look at the world we're living in right now. Look at the world we're living in right now. There are nations, there are continents that have totally turned away from Christianity and the Bible. And everyone is going around doing what they see fit. 20 years ago, we heard about, well, if it's true for you, then that's truth. There's only truth. It doesn't belong to an individual or a person. You can't have a different truth from me. Truth is truth is truth. End of discussion. But again, without someone or something at the helm being the lead, everyone just kind of scatters into their own way of thinking and doing. So that's the story that we're going to pick up now. The people of Israel have reached the end of the book of Judges, and there's no one in charge. Well, there's a, there's a high priest. His name is Eli. But we're going to see in a little bit, Eli is an ineffective leader. 
He's a leader and in, 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 he's a figurehead. He's the high priest and he's the one that leads the worship. But he's not a leader. His own sons are sleeping with women at the temple. I mean, they're doing heinous things. They are bringing disrepute onto the name of God as the religious leader of the nation. And so that's why it was important that a leader be brought in. Because the people of Israel just don't get it when there isn't one. But the challenge before we get into that story is I want to know a little bit about the story of of Samuel before we actually look at this first passage. So the very first thing we need to know, go ahead and bring up the next slide, please. There seems to be a conflict. Samuel, as we will learn, it was raised up to be the leader and it ends up he becomes the priest over the nation of Israel. But in the book of the law of Moses, only Levites can be priests. So if we're going to follow God and do what God says, then how in the world could Samuel be a priest if he wasn't a Levite? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, I mean, excuse you, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. Elkanah is the father of Samuel. Samuel, the first Samuel chapter one, verse one says, Elkanah was an Ephraimite. What is an Ephraimite? Does anybody know? From the tribe of Ephraim? From the tribe of Ephraim? If you remember when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, they divided the land into states, if you will. And each tribe took over an area of geography that became their land, their state, their region. And Ephraim took over a certain area. And so if you are from that area, you were an Ephraimite. And like you said, of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, go to First Chronicles. Just a few pages over. Chapter 6, verse 33. Now, I forgot to tell you. If you can, go keep First Samuel 1 open. And then look at First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 6. <coughs> And it's chapter 6, verse 33 through 38. Now, I'm going to see if I can possibly do it. Bear with me. Oh, I know how I'll do it. I've got a physical Bible here I'll do. Because it's on my iPad, it's too hard to do. Okay, so 1 Samuel said, chapter 1, verse 1, said that Elkanah, being the father of Samuel, was the son of of Jeroham. Look at at um, First Chronicles, chapter six, verse thirty-three, and it says, "Here are the men who served together with their sons from the Kohathites. There was Haman the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Sat of Elkanah." Okay, so they're going backwards in time. So there's this guy named Haman. He's a musician. He's the grandson of Samuel. You see that? Verse 33. Uh, Heman is the son of Joel, who was the son of Samuel, who was the son of Elkanah. So verse 34 now is talking about Elkanah, who was the son of Jeroham. Look at chapter one of Samuel. And it says Elkanah was the son of Jeroham. Then he say Jeroham was the son of Eliel. Jeroham, the son of Elihu. And if you look at the note, it says it could also be pronounced Eliel. And then you look and Eliel was the son of Toa. And then go back to 1 Samuel and it says son of Tohu, which could also be Toa, if you look at the notes. Then if you through verse 35 in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, the son, Toa is the son of Zeph. Chapter 1 of Samuel says Toa is the son of Zeph. Now it says here in 1 Samuel, Zeph was an Ephraimite. But go back to chapter 6 of verse of First Chronicles. It says, The son of Zeph, the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahath, the son of Amasai, the son of Elkanah, 
the son of Joel, the son of Zazariah, the son of Zephaniah, the son of Tahath, the son of Asir, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. So Elkanah is an Ephraimite and a Levite? How is that possible? Think about it. When, J- when Joshua split up the land of Israel and every one of the tribes received a, a region of land, there were only 11 regions. One region, one tribe didn't get land, did they? Who were they? The Levites. What did they get? They got God, but they got cities within all of the regions and farmland around those cities. And some of those cities became known as the cities of refuge. Remember all of that from your Joshua stories? Okay, so what we have is a Levite whose name is Elkanah, who lives in the area of Ephraim. So he's an Ephraimite by by statehood, but he's actually lineage to Levi. So Levi's son, great, 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 great grandson, Elkanah, has a son named Samuel, who becomes the priest over Israel. So there is no conflict with the Mosaic law, even though first Excuse me. First Samuel identifies the line as being Ephraimite. First Chronicles identifies that he is biologically a Levite or genealogically a Levite. He is regionally an Ephraimite. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the question of whether or not Samuel was authorized or was allowed to serve as the priest. Next slide up. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, I know this is kind of cranky, but, but we have to do this to, in order to understand all the, all the, the things that have come up in this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11, it says, His mother Hannah made a vow to the Lord Almighty, saying, If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That is a weird vow. Give me a boy and I will dedicate him to you and I'll never give him a haircut, ever. There will never be a time in his life where a razor touches his head. What in the world? Now turn to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. This is the last jumping around. Well, that's not the last jumping around we're going to do. But here in the book of Numbers, which is the the, the, the Mosaic law, the Torah, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. They must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins as long as they remain under the Nazarite vow. They must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in a Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, on the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves and two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest is to offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of a dead body. And that same day, they either consecrate their head again and they must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of dedication and must bring 
a year, blah, 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 blah. And basically they start all over again. Okay. So if you make a Nazarite vow before God, this is a very serious thing in God's eyes. And you're basically saying, I am setting myself apart for your holy purposes. And they're for this specific cause, this specific reason. Oh God, I'm setting myself aside for this. And the sign of this is I growing my hair. But I'm also keeping myself ritually clean by following these very specific rules. Okay. Now, Hannah does this when she makes the vow before God. If God will give her a son, she'll raise him to be a Nazarite. That's unfair. Kid never gets to do anything because his mom wanted a boy. What's that? I don't know. That's just what she did. She's the one that made the vow. Now, it says for as long as they're of Nazarite, okay, at some point, Samuel becomes an, an adult in his own right at his bar mitzvah. Then he can make a decision for himself whether or not he wants to cut his hair and start eating grapes. That's his business. But until he was 12, he was dedicated to the Lord. His mother saw to that when she made that vow before God. It was a Nazarite vow. So that's what she's talking about. In chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, when Hannah says, if you give me a boy, no razor will touch his head. That's exactly what she's talking about. It was a, it was a vow of dedication. He would be holy unto the Lord for at least the first 12 years of his life. Okay? All of that makes sense? All right. Now, let's get started with this idea of God is our help in times of trouble. We're going to read these first, um, uh, Quickly read the first 31 verses because you've got to, or not 31 verses, 20 verses. You've got to in order to understand the whole thing. So follow along with me. Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah, to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah... He gave a special or a double portion. Depends on what translation you're reading. Because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and wouldn't eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, let's stop there for just a second. Hear what's going on in this very dysfunctional household. We have a man of God. He's a Levite who lives in the area of Ephraim. He's married to a woman named Hannah. He's very devout. He goes to the, up to the, the, the temple area, which is in Shiloh at this point in Israel's history, to worship. When they go to worship, they bring an animal to be sacrificed. When the animal is sacrificed, a portion of the meat goes to the priest and his family, but the rest of it goes back to the person offering the sacrifice, and then they have a feast. For that celebration. This happens three times a year. Two times a, three times a year, all the men have to go. At least once a year, they usually bring their families. So we don't know, did Hannah and go, Hannah and, and Peninnah and her kids go every single time or did they just go once? We don't know. But for sure, that's what was happening. It was the annual gathering. They had come for the sacrifice. Elkanah brought a sacrifice. The priests, Hopping and Phineas, sacrificed the animal, took their portion, gave the rest to, El to Elkanah and his family, and they're now having a feast. So Elkanah, the leader of the household, is passing out the food to his wife Peninnah, to her children, and then he gives the best to Hannah. Because Hannah is the one that he truly loves. Now, we're not given this in the story, but this is the understanding that scholars will tell you. Hannah and Elkanah grew up as young loves. They probably knew each other in their village. They probably had been in love since they were little. And then they, they got married and they lived together in love with each other, staring wonderfully into each other's eyes, holding hands at the candlelight and enjoying life. But the challenge was not once ever 
could Hannah conceive? And in that culture, she was a failure. It brought great shame to her. It was a horrible situation for her. It was a great disappointment to her husband. But we hear from the way he's treating her, he did not reject her. He loved her, continued to love her, continued to honor her, continued to give her better than anyone else in the household, which was not helpful. Because what happened was, we don't know why he married Peninnah, we just know he did. Did he marry Peninnah after his wife said to him, I can't give you kids, find someone else who can give you kids. Or did he just go find someone who could give him kids? which just made Hannah feel that much worse about herself. We're not given any of that. We just know there's a lot of dysfunction going on. There's a barren woman who wants to give the love of her life an heir. There is another woman who gets brought in basically to provide kids to the household, but all the love gets poured onto the first wife. She's just being used to, to procreate. That's pretty much her role in this house. At least that's what we're given from this understanding. So she's provided for, she's taken care of. He doesn't mistreat her necessarily, but he certainly doesn't lavish and pour out love on her like he does on Hannah. What does that do for relationship between Hannah and Peninnah? Peninnah is jealous of Hannah. Does that sound a little bit like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar? Hmm, what's wrong with these people that they never read their history and learn? I don't know. What's wrong with us that we never read our history and learn? I don't know. The challenge being that in this dysfunctional household, you have two women, one who desperately wants to provide an heir to her husband, the other one who has no problem providing children for her husband and most likely has provided at least one son. We're not told that at this point, but likelihood is that there was a son. And so there's this conflict. So what happens now? Every year they go to this festival. Every year there's this big celebration. Every year Hannah gets the better part of the meat. Every year. Peninnah, verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, Peninnah, the rival, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. There was this constant Look at my kids. Look at my, look at the relationship. I, I can provide for him. You are a waste. You are a total waste. I don't understand why he even keeps you around. So you've got this very damaged, very broken human being who feels less than, who is shamed, who has this covering and this name of barrenness. And she has this constant daily reminder from the rival who's saying, you're worthless, you have nothing, you offer, you are just a waste of time, you just suck life, you have nothing to offer. And so verse 9, they're at this big huge party, and once when they had finished eating, even though Hannah refused to eat because she was so distressed, Hannah gets up, and it says, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, which means he was in his place of authority at the temple. And Hannah, in deep anguish, goes into the temple and begins praying to the Lord, weeping bitterly. We're not told this in the scriptures, but it is very probable that she wasn't even aware that Eli was physically present. She was so focused on going before God with her pain and her horror and her dismay and her shame and just weeping before God. And she gets in there and she's not saying it out loud. It's verse 11. She says, Lord God Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head as she kept on praying to the Lord verse 12 Eli observed her mouth Hannah verse 13 Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard And Eli thought she was drunk. So here we have this woman who is 
desperately in pain emotionally. She has no self-worth. She is constantly berated by the woman, the other woman in the household. She has the constant reminder day by day of laughing and running around children that she can't give to her husband. And no matter how hard her husband tries to pour out love on her, she can't receive it. So she goes to God in the depths of her despair. And she in her heart prays this prayer and makes a vow before God. But she doesn't even dare speak the words because of the depth of her pain. She's just moving her lips as she's saying these words in her heart to the father. And the priest gets up and looks at her and he says, uh, where was I? Uh, verse 14. He said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. And she looks at him, probably goes, oh, oh, no, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and my grief. And Eli answered. Now, we're not told this. But Eli, it says, answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. So he saw something in her in the way that she responded to him. He saw that this was genuine, that she wasn't drunk, that she indeed was in great pain. And he prayed a blessing on her. Go in peace and may God grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, may your servant Find favor in your, in her, in your eyes. And then she went her way and she ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Something happened in that transaction. The Holy Spirit of God confirmed in Hannah's heart that she had been heard. And maybe she was going to get what she had asked for. So she finally had peace. She finally was able to go and eat and join her family. In verse 19, early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. The word, the name Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for God has heard. Powerful, powerful story. Powerful, powerful story. God is our help in times of trouble. Let me share with you. Pastor Bob had something happen this week and you don't need to know the details. It's not important. This is my life. But I had something happen this week that was on the interpersonal relationship level. And somebody caused harm to me as a human being. Cut me very deeply. It was kind of like, in my heart, almost like the betrayal that Jesus felt when he said, the one who I have shared bread with, the one whose feet I have washed, has gone to betray me. That's the depth of the cut. For me, Now, it was amazing how it happened. And again, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details because you don't need to know. I had sat down to have my quiet time with God. I intentionally sat down to spend time with God. And this was yesterday morning because this whole week has been kind of a crazy week for me. So yesterday morning early, I got up and I sat down And I first thought was, well, I need to get working on my sermon. No, I first need to spend time with God because trying to work on a sermon when you haven't even heard from Jesus, when you haven't even interacted with Jesus is a waste of your effort, Bob. You need to spend time with God. And so I opened the word to have my regular devotions. I started praying and I was reminded of something that needed to take place. And I was afraid if I didn't act on it right then and there, It would be lost and I would be in trouble. So I went ahead and stopped what I was doing and I opened up my internet and I looked at something. I was looking for a date and a time so that I could then send an email to somebody. And as I looked at this, there was a 
an official record of something where someone brought a charge against me. Now, I'm not talking police, but I'm talking, it's in a permanent record, and someone wanted to talk to the, about me. And I was never even asked. I was never even brought into the conversation. I was never even told that there was going to be any kind of a discussion or conference or meeting of any kind whatsoever. Oh, oh, I don't want to be angry, God. I'm hurt, but I don't want to be angry and I don't want to act out of, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to read. No, I'm not. I can't. Oh, so I make a phone call and I, I, not to this person, but to this person. And I talk to this person. I say, I need to, I need to confirm something. Did something happen this week? Blah, blah. Yes. Did something that? Yes. The people who are involved are all followers of Christ. Although this necessarily wasn't necessarily a church thing, it was still done by all followers of Christ. And as I'm talking to you, help me to understand. Matthew chapter 18 clearly says Jesus' own words printed in red ink. For those of you that's important for Jesus himself said, if you have a brother or a sister who has sinned against you, you are to go to them privately and confront them. And if they refuse to listen, you are then to come back to them with two or three witnesses because everything is based on witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, then you bring it before the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then you bring it, you treat them as a, as if they were a tax collector and you shun them. That's how Christians are supposed to respond when there's a conflict. Can you help me to understand why this process wasn't done? I don't have an answer. I wasn't the one that instigated. I just was part of. Understand and know. I'm not angry. I'm hurt. And I intend to speak with the person who caused the harm. As I'm supposed to do. Okay. I'm really sorry. I understand. It's not yours to apologize. I understand. Thank you for hearing me. Every time... All day yesterday, every time I tried to come to the word, to read, to pray, to prepare. Every time. It had to have been at least 10 or 12 times yesterday at separate points in my day. Because I'd have to back off and go, nope, I'll come back to it later. And every time that I would open the Bible or try to... That, ang- that anger, it's not anger, this hurt, this cut, this cut deep kept coming to my face. And I was like, finally, at 11 o'clock last night, I went, I'm going to bed. Please, please, please tell me First and Second Samuel or Acts tomorrow morning when I wake up. Please, I have to tell them something at 11 o'clock. So I went to bed at 11 I woke up at five when my alarm went off. I got up. I had a cup of coffee. I opened up my Bible with the intent of having prayer and devotion before I even tried to do any sermon prep, even though I only had a few hours left. But I know, I know, I know I have to get on my face before God before I can do any sermon prep. And as I opened my time of prayer, that cut came right back to me. And I went, I can't do this. I can't do this. Now, I'm not angry. I am hurt. I am, I feel like I've been betrayed. And I was like, God. And I literally, at this point, I stopped. And now, thankfully, no one else in the house was awake because I was in the living room. And I went, God, I need your help. I cannot do this. 
Every time I try and do this, I'm slapped in the face with this. And I am acknowledging that this is from the pit of hell trying to defeat me. And I'm pleading with you, Jesus, overcome this. Get this out of here so I can do your work. Please, God. Gone. Now, am I still hurt? Yes. Am I still going to have to talk with the person who hurt me? Yes. But I was able to get out from underneath it because I cried out to God and said, help me. This is beyond me. I don't have the ability or the strength to do this. And I want to give you and you need to write these down because this is what God did for me. Not just this morning. He did it yesterday, but I wasn't listening. (laughs) He kept bringing it to my mind, but I wasn't listening. But again, this morning he brought it to me and he said, and you tell your people, tell my people this this morning. Uh, Roy, bring up that first slide. Psalm 46, verse one, the one I shared with the children. God is our refuge and strength. God is an ever present help. In times of trouble. Bring up the next slide. Psalm 28, 8. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Now let's pause here. The Hebrew that is translated fortress of salvation is Yeshua Maus. Yeshua means saving or salvation. Mauz means fortress. So the, the, the place of safety is the name of Jesus. <laughs> Psalm 28, 8. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a place of salvation or safety for his anointed one. Next slide. Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. The, hist- the background on this verse, the people of Israel have left Egypt. The people of Israel have come to the edge of the Red Sea. And the sea is full and there's no way to continue forward. And they turn around to look and the Pharaoh and his army are coming down at them. And they're screaming in terror at Moses. What have you done? What have you done? You have brought us out of the desert to die. And this is the word. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Another way of translating that is you only need to shut up. That's what it says. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to keep quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your eyes focused on him. Stand perfectly still and let him do the battle. And then the last one. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Can you bring up that next slide? 27, 14. There it is. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Go ahead and bring up that last slide. When Hannah, in the depths of her despair, walked over into the temple area and poured out her heart before God, she had no understanding that she was going to get pregnant. There was no physical evidence of pregnancy. There was no change in her condition. There was no change in her relationship with her family. Nothing changed. Why was she able to walk out of there and go and at peace, eat with her family, celebrate and have a a smile on her face, if you will, and not be fake? What changed? What happened? She if you will, got a word from the Lord through Eli. The Lord has heard you and may he grant to you that which you have requested. Now, 
I can't say that that was a prophetic utterance to her mind. We know it was a prophetic utterance because that's what, that's what happened. But the bottom line is, and this is what I want you to hear. She prayed through. She continued to pray until her heart was at peace. She didn't necessarily have the answer, but she prayed until she was at peace. When she was at peace, she literally left it in God's hands and went back to her life. And she did not pick it back up and carry it with her. She gave it to God, left it with him, trusting him for the outcome, regardless of what the outcome was. I have made my case before God. I have pled with him. I've made a vow before him, but I can't force his hand. This is between him and him alone, but I'm trusting him for an outcome that is beneficial for him and for me. And I have peace now. And I can go back without all of the roiling and without all of the pain and without all of the... And the end result was she got what she prayed for. And so I encourage you people. I don't know every single one of your lives. I don't know the stresses and frustrations that you're under. I don't know the pain that has been brought to you because of other human beings. But I do know I shared with you those verses that God gave me to get me through and I shared them with you so you can take them home and pray over them and pray through until you can walk past the pain. I'm not saying you're going to get an answer right away. I'm not going to say it's going to be resolved right away. I'm not going to say it's ever going to be resolved. That's not up to you. That's not up to any of us. That's God's. But you can come to the point where you can walk in trust. And confidence and faith knowing you have been heard. And knowing that God would never, ever, ever forsake you. It doesn't mean you're going to get what you asked for. But he will never forsake you. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. You just need to wait on him. Can you bring up that last, the devotional slide, please? I want to pray with you guys. Again, I don't know what you guys are facing right now. I know some of you are facing some pretty heavy stuff. And I think God allowed in my own life this week this pain to give me a glimpse of some of the pain you guys have been experiencing. Because I've had a pretty easy ride for a long time. I really have. But this one cut deep. And this one hurt. It still hurts. But at least I've got peace now. Let's pray. Father... You are God. We have declared that over and over and over again. We committed ourselves to you. We have submitted ourselves to you. We have entrusted ourselves to you. But there are things that have come up in our own world that are beyond us. That we have no control over. We have no way of resolving. We have no way of making it fix. All we can do is plead with you, God, help me. And so, God, I ask that you help us to pray through until the peace comes. And may your name be honored and glorified through all of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.